Thank you. <clears throat> How many of you do not know what a certified registered nurse anesthetist? You know, I ask these questions in some of these meetings, and there's usually a couple of hands that go up. Well, good, everybody knows. Um, so what I'm going to talk about a little bit, I think, is what many of you have probably, with a lot of the lectures that you've certainly seen in this room today, is uh, a little bit of redundancy. So I'm not going to waste time on that. Uh, towards the end of this talk, we'll get into some of the economics, which I haven't seen uh, in any of the lectures, at least that I've sat in so far, is really looking at you know the cost of care that we're rendering and then what are the outcomes that we're achieving with that. How many of you do not know what MACRA is? Okay. Well, it started in 2019. It's reimbursement through CMS and how they're going to pay for performance. So now it's not quantity and volume of services that we get reimbursed for. It's now for quality and outcomes. And so you'll fall under one of two branches, merit incentive payment systems, or you'll sit in a, a accountable um, a bundle payment system, whether that be uh, accountable care organizations, et cetera, which is the other arm. You won't be in both, you'll be in one or the other. And so <clears throat> the goal with reimbursement in those strategies, and one of the great parallels with enhanced recovery and opioid sparing multimodal strategies is that these techniques are proving to be very beneficial, not only for patient, but also for outcome. And so everybody wins with it. And I'll show that by the numbers at the end. <clears throat> so I have no disclosures. I don't speak for any drug companies, although I get asked a fair amount to. Um, but when there's an agent that's on the market that actually works and it evaluates, one of my pet peeves is, you know, I have a conversation with pharmacy here earlier, is that when I have an agent that I know works really well, but because it costs maybe $100 for a unit dose, but I can achieve a better outcome with it, then I should be able to use that agent. And so that speaks to things like collaboration throughout the entire hospital entity, whether that be pharmacy, whether that be our surgical colleagues, whether that be OR, recovery room, nursing. Um, you will always hear people will talk about, how do I get enhanced recovery programs started in our facility? Well, it's not one person, it's teams. And I'll tell you, at MD Anderson Cancer Center, we've got 60 to 70% of our service lines are in some form of an enhanced recovery multimodal strategy out of our entire practice. And we do about 45,000 cases a year. We have 65 anesthetizing locations. So 60 to 70% of that is enhanced recovery. And we've revolutionized our outcomes by implementing enhanced recovery strategies, and we'll go through some of that. <clears throat> so, you know, why are we even talking about this? Obviously, Pain Week is a great venue to have, and I would prefer to see everybody sitting all together in one area because this is what it's all about, is coming to conferences like this and collaborating with each other, the nurses, the physicians, the pharmacists, administrators, etc., so that you can build a program around who's the most important entity within enhanced recovery programs. It's the patient, right? <clears throat> and so, as we see with surgery across the United States, more than two million people transition to some form of a persistent opiate following some form of an elective surgery. And this is just with ambulatory surgeries every year. And we've heard numerous counts of research that's been 
um, sort of validating that certainly today in this room, so I'm not going to go over and over uh, that type of stuff. Overprescribing, here's another one, post-surgical opioids. It results in billions of pills that go into these communities or people's homes that never either get consumed or they contribute to the opioid crisis that we're dealing with currently. <clears throat> 2015, 2.1 uh, million people misuse prescription opioids for the first time. I mean, these are staggering numbers. Uh, and then they also trickle on to communities, right? <clears throat> and then the final one here, nearly half of the U.S. opioid overdose deaths is related to prescription opioids. And if you think back to CDC reported in November 2018 that synthetic opioids, specifically fentanyl, is now on the street as far as, uh, you know, street drugs, is now the number one cause of death. It's not heroin, it's not cocaine or anything like that. It's fentanyl that is the number one um, cause of death. And certainly, you know, prescriptions might be an element of that. There's certainly black market from China. Now you've got research drugs like W18 that comes across from China and is, you know, is as potent, if not more potent, than things like carfentanil, which is, you know, 10,000 times more potent than uh, the fentanyls and the morphines. So opioid sparing techniques, which is one of the main, certainly in the world that I work in, uh, in anesthesia, or the perioperative space, uh, our main role is multimodal opioid sparing strategies. And I will tell you that the benefit that you're able to produce post-operative uh, period into, you know, if it's a hospital stay, the benefit is disproportionately benefit for what we do in the perioperative environment and certainly high, high impact. And, and one of those things, and we heard this today also, is <clears throat> while the goal of opioid multimodal strategies is to go opioid-free, and I cringe, you know, I got colleagues of mine across the country that, that oh, I do opioid-free anesthesia, and, and, you know, patient intervariability is very, very different, and we have to tailor our care to the patient themselves. And certainly, we have tools that are available to us now, you know, uh, pharmacogenomic reports and, and stuff like that to kind of help tailor right to the genes of the individual. But it's individuality that we have to tailor our care around that patient. It's not, you know, how many of you work in academic practices or train residents, students? Okay, there's a few of you. Are you noticing? people either prescribing or managing cases because it's the way they've done it all the time and not individualizing uh, their care. And I, I give you an example with some of our residents and, and our fellows and our, our uh, uh, students that come through. Uh, you know, the battery of agents before they go back to the room is give Versed to all their patients, Fomotidine 20 milligrams, uh, and then they might have fentanyl sitting in their pocket. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Like, does the patient need Versed? And they're like, well, I give all my patients that. I mean, well, that wasn't my question. My question is, does the patient need a benzodiazepine to go back from the holding area to the operating room when you're going to give them industrial strength gabatus, right, which is propofol? <clears throat> and so having those conversations, I can tell you, in, in most of our practice, we try to keep those those combinations as clean as we possibly can. If the patient needs the agent, then we'll add it to the regimen. 
Uh, one of the things, you know, I speak on some of these topics uh, a fair amount, um, certainly in the last four years, <clears throat> and people are always asking, well, can you share your protocol? Can you share the recipe? And while there are frameworks that we can work from, but all of the education that we've garnered over what is more than a decade for many of us, um, <clears throat> it's the art and science of what we do day to day and tailor our care around those patients with not only the art, but also all of the ammunition that we have available to us. And so we'll get into some of this. I'm not going to repeat a lot of the stuff that was, that was stated today. So going through the specific drugs, uh, I might go through one or two uh, with regional anesthesia. But, you know, for us, why avoid opioids, obviously, or at least minimize them? If we have to rescue with an opioid and it's prudent, then we have to rescue with an opioid when patients have breakthrough. But there's a multimodal uh, stepwise fashion that we approach pain management, whether that be acute, and I'll be the first to say, is that I have no expertise in chronic pain management. And again, this gets back down to collaboration and building enhanced recovery teams around that patient. So it's everything from not just the surgeons, not just the anesthesia team, the PACU or the operating room uh, teams. You want chronic pain management involved. You want internal medicine, um, uh, even substance use disorder experts. Uh, the bench, you know, I work in fantasy land at, at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We have an abundance of resources, so we even have people that are doing a lot of their opioid research and pain research that will kind of pick their brains on what, what's the latest uh, and greatest that's out there. And certainly, tolerance, dependence, and addiction are, are obviously the three that we want to uh, mitigate at least a little bit the doses of, of opioids that we're administering. <clears throat> but I put this little chart up here, and it's kind of helping demonstrate all of the side effects that opioids, to some degree, will affect patients. And now, there's even emerging literature now that is moving from the bench science into outcomes, and it's specifically in the oncologic world. And it's neoplastic metastasis, potentially, or certainly there are some correlation studies, to where the linear dosage administration of opioids is potentially contributing to metastatic cancer long term. Those studies are all over the place right now. And again, had another conversation. I heard this this morning, too. Uh, in this morning's lectures is, is we have to be really informed consumers of research and literature because there's some really bad literature or research that's done out there that is unfortunately published. And the unfortunate thing is, is then we have colleagues that make decisions based on that literature. I give the one is, is uh, an example of PO versus IVC dominophen. And you look at the power of these studies, 30-some people in an each arm is not a powered study to reach statistical significance. And so I have, uh, unfortunately, I don't have it in my slide deck here, but I have <clears throat> patient when we were doing the study at our facility, we went down with a scope, and I usually like to spend the 30-some-odd dollars on the IVC dominophen for that prescribed amount of time because I have complete control over the case. <clears throat> well, this patient was on the arm of PO. We went down with the scope to go and evaluate the stomach, this lower abdominal surgery. We go evaluate the, the, the stomach, and the dosage of acetaminophen is sitting in the stomach, still in full form, not degraded. 
And so I would debate the PO versus IV. Unless you're getting the PO the night before of a gram, and then they're reinstituting a few hours before surgery. <clears throat> Nonetheless, um, we're starting to see merging literature that's looking at outcomes and looking at long-term long survival of cancer metastasis with the use of uh, opiates. <clears throat> like surgical stress or surgical incision or controlled uh, trauma by our surgical colleagues, enormous amount of inflammation and stress, which then creates a whole cyclical uh, events, not much different than somebody that's, you know, New York heart classification, heart failure uh, uh, of a level four, um, catecholamine, hormonal release, which then starts to spiral out of control. The other is immune function is compromised, not only by uncontrolled inflammation and stress response, um, but also we push that down with the administration of opioids. And again, much of the literature is, is demonstrating that in a lin linear formation. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I say this again, it's, it's sparing, opioid sparing, not opioid free. And so, while there's a linear dosage, and again, that literature is, again, all over the place, um, but certainly gleaning what uh, the literature is demonstrating as far as patterns, um, if somebody's breaking through, we have to administer opioids, then uh, it should be done. Um, certainly selecting which opioid, you know, in chronic pain is another subclass of, of patients with acute pain that, that adds that complexity. That's the decisions where we start to incorporate chronic pain so that they can help before we go back and do any interventions with the patient so that we can balance the acute versus the chronic pain um, because they're going to be helping manage that patient in the postoperative phase. You know, I do a lot of um, neuroanesthesia, and one of our go-to agents for whether that be uh, a brief period of awake craniotomies till we get down for the tumor resection, whether that be skull-based surgery, we used to use a lot of remifentanil. <clears throat> we've started to get away from that because a lot of literature now that's coming out is saying that we're actually opioid-inducing hyperalgesia into the postoperative phase. And there's more and more research that's coming out, not only uh, that, but increasing the pro-inflammatory cytokines. And so, again, um, our skull-based surgery cases, if we give anything, um, it might be one dose of hydromorphone if we give any opioid uh, at all in many of our, our craniotomy cases. <clears throat> so we've seen a number of speakers, whether that be in this room today, and I'm sure throughout uh, the venue, bringing up a lot of the agents and the pathways that we can address with agents that we have that can alter or mitigate the transmission of pain, whether that be transmission, perception, whether that be modulation, et cetera. Uh, you know, and I just put this up here just to demonstrate that we've got an agent almost for every single thing up there that we can mitigate or reduce uh, at the palm of our hands. And so the question is, is how do you balance that out? And, and as I said earlier, <clears throat> you do multimodal strategies like the WHO stepwise for um, uh, fashion here, which I would say they probably need to add a couple more steps in here, certainly with acute pain management uh, in the perioperative phase. Um, but when you have to resort to an opiate to rescue, that that is prudent management of the patient. The good thing is, is that we're not bathing. We used to bathe our patients in, in sufentanil, 
in many of our cases because our cases uh, in our practice are 12, 14, 16, and 18 hours in duration. <clears throat> I usually, I don't put the video in, in this, this talk, but I have a video that I usually use in some lectures. And what we used to do with our radical um, pelvic exents and, and um, uh, colon resections as well as uh, ileoconduits um, is those cases would take anywhere from 12, 14, 16 hours. They would typically have a length of stay of somewhere between 10 to 14 days length of stay, depending on their comorbidity and what their treatment regimen uh, is. <clears throat> Since we've implemented enhanced recovery in those service lines, and the, the one video kind of hits, hits at home, um, we basically tailor the anesthetic through multimodal strategies we use we were using epidural catheters for the most part now. We've almost transitioned entirely over to uh, single-shot uh, injection re regional anesthetics with ultrasound. <clears throat> that has now gone from 10 to 14 days down to 2.7 to 4 days length of stay. And in many cases, those patients are opioid-free. These are after 16-hour cases of pretty extensive bowel manipulation, resection, et cetera. And so while it can be done and that be the objective, um, but I will say that we do have patients that do break through and we have to rescue them. Um, and so <clears throat> another example of, of a abdominal case would be liver resection where we have uh, not been able to find an appropriate uh, regional anesthetic other than the epidural catheter to get their scapular pain because it comes from the retractors has nothing to do with surgical incision at all. It's that scapular pain that's even worse than, um, <clears throat> than the surgery itself. And so we've found that in those types of cases, if the, if the surgeon's going to use those types of retractors, then we would put in an epidural and we're able to get some coverage with that. <clears throat> and so that brings up the topic of, do you put in an epidural? Do you do regional anesthesia? Are they beneficial? Um, I certainly can tell you, um, and this study sort of validates, <clears throat> we do something um, internal and external hemipelvectomies where we'll um, pull out some of the pelvic girdle um, or some of our amputations in our practice. And so what we'll do is we'll put in uh, a pain catheter that'll stay in there, but we put it in in the holding area so that the patient gets loaded up and they become pain-free. And then um, they go in, they do the resection, they don't develop, they typically don't develop that phantom pain once the extremity is missing. But there's still a lot of controversy, and I'll tell you, if you look at, and I want you to focus, 2001. Article just came out Monday with a systematic review looking at all of these, whether we should be putting uh, epidural catheters in um, a whole range of oncologic uh, surgical patient populations. The evidence is no more clear today than it was in 2001, which is pitiful. You would think by now we'd have figured it out. It's almost the same conversation. Should we give crystalloids versus should we give colloids? Which one's the best one to do? Um, <clears throat> but certainly, I think those of you that put catheters in uh, or do regional anesthetics will certainly validate um, these findings as the fact that the patients do quite well unless it's an unsuccessful block um, and they didn't get on a nerve fiber. And, and nowadays, with the technology with ultrasound probes and the high definition of ultrasound, um, 
I'll tell you, regional anesthesia on a week-to-week basis is evolving in the anesthesia world. We are now using regional techniques that have been around for a while, but we're applying them to other surgical uh, interventions with some incredible outcomes. How many of you are in hospitals where they do orthopedic surgery? Okay. Are your knees in um, same-day surgery? Did they transition over there? Yeah? Anybody not? I know Oklahoma hasn't. Anybody here not? So, <clears throat> so this gets into the economics, right? So there's higher reimbursement if you have moved joints, those types of joints, out into your, your outpatient surgery settings. Enhanced recovery programs do a very good job. So it's a combination of either regional, regional plus nerve catheter, um, <clears throat> multimodal strategies, and then you know these surgeons now are, are so good with these joints. Um, they're not either leaving, walking out of the recovery room. There are some practices I know in New York City where they're actually walking out of the OR into physical therapy, and then they stay in a hotel room for a couple of days to where um, surgeon comes up and follows, and the team uh, follows up on. So regional anesthesia, without question, has a place, and there is a whole cadre of mixes and concoctions uh, that we either, our surgical colleagues or anesthesia providers um, implement in some of these regional techniques. <clears throat> so, opioid sparing, multimodal um, strategies. Again, uh, rather than um, just the chemicals that endogenously are released due to stress um, or blunting of the immune response, again, we have agents that will, when you start looking at receptor theory, uh, modulation and feedback, we have agents that will hit every single one of those uh, elements. And, and I think this morning in the, in the 1045 uh, meeting, we're starting to see some more emerging agents that are coming onto the market uh, that are in development right now. So it's promising that we're able to get away from whatever the badness that, that opioids are, are creating, whether that be the inflammatory response. And there's a whole host of um, chemical and cellular um, reactions that, that they're starting to find with bench science with opioid use um, that they're able actually to talk about and see where there's genetic switches to where it actually promotes down pathways of, of neoplastic tissue development. And so there'll be more on that. just want to speak a little bit about liposomal bupivacaine um, certainly in our practice, this is another one of those agents, right, is hospitals will take it off formulary because it's too expensive to use. Well, the problem is if you know how to use it and it's implemented effectively, patients do much better as far as pain control postoperatively. I'm not going to say that's all patients, um, but by and large the majority. We take and not only liposomal bupivacaine, we mix it with free bupivacaine so that we can get volume displacement in our regional blocks. <clears throat> and so I put this up here just as a, the disclaimer because I don't want anybody walking if, if they are doing injections and they go home and they start mixing uh, liposomal bupivacaine with free bupivacaine. There is a formula and you have to adhere to the formula and you have to make sure that it's weight-based. Um, and certainly, again, your pharmacy colleagues will help you um, do those calculations. <clears throat> and I'll tell you, when we do these mixtures, um, it's not just anesthesia going up, getting the drug from the window. We involve 
the circulating nurses. We have them helping out with the calculations so that they're also educated and they're part of the enhanced recovery uh, pathways and, and plans. <clears throat> and certainly when we've implemented liposomal bupivacaine, like I said earlier, our 16-hour you know, radical uh, uh, resections of belly cases, um, these are, we were doing tap blocks, then we went to QL, Q, uh, uh, QL1, 2s, and 3 blocks, and now um, <clears throat> we've transitioned some of those blocks, and those patients are getting three days without need for any supplementation of opioids, by and large the largest cohort. Um, certainly chronic pain is, is, a, um, is a, another element that uh, we have to bring in other additional team uh, chronic pain um, experts in. <clears throat> surgical infiltration. How many of you have sat and watched surgeons when they do a local infiltration of a wound? Yeah, they go in with the needle, shove it in, and then they just drop the lidoc or they drop their local anesthetic um, through the tissue. <clears throat> it's nothing against the surgeons. It just it needs to be a little bit more strategic than a depot injection, right? There are three to four layers. Um, Dr. Joshi out of University of Texas uh, Southwestern in Dallas uh, put this paper together with some of his surgical colleagues. And so, you know, strategically infiltrating all the layers, you know, and, and liposomal bupivacaine was getting a bad rap because surgeons would say, well, it's not working. I'm not getting uh, the 72 hours of pain relief um, that I should have got from the incisional pain. When in fact, um, they may not have, their technique may have not been optimal. And so, it's a nice little paper to give uh, surgical colleagues when you see that and just kind of encourage them to uh, maybe get a little bit better infiltration. Again, I'm not going to go through all of these drugs. I think <clears throat> we've hit these for the most part um, with most of the lectures today. <clears throat> and certainly I can tell you in our practice, um, so protocols even within our own practice at our facility um, are pretty diverse. Um, and part of that is maybe provider dependent, um, but certainly um, the framework is what we all work from. Um, so does a patient need, uh, I think I got it on the next slide, dexmedetomidine. You heard a little bit about that great drug. And I would tell you, um, that's one of the ones that I pull out for chronic pain patients um, and use intraoperatively and, and frequently with chronic pain, the patients will tell me, when they wake up, they're like, I haven't had this low of a pain score in months to years. Um, and I don't want to isolate it to dexmedetomidine because I got a battery of things that are going on. Because uh, we give the gabapentin, we give the COX-2 inhibitors, the acetaminophen. We may or may not use tramadol uh, preoperatively before going back, depending on whether it's a chronic pain patient or not. Um, <clears throat> certainly you want to be cautious with the uh, TCAs and the SSRIs. Um, if you're going to give uh, tramadol because of the uh, serotonin um, issues. Magnesium, we've heard three lectures in a row today in here, and I'm not going to go into that. We certainly haven't added that into our, uh, haven't had a need to add it into our practice yet. Lidocaine, we do use lidocaine infusions. We run it about uh, two milligrams per minute. Um, Trying to get it transitioned off onto the floor, there are some, depending on the service lines, we are able to get the infusions onto the floor. The same thing with ketamine, low, low dose ketamine infusions. Um, and I think I got those ones on the next, uh, alpha-2 agonist to your dexmedetomidine. 
than your NMD antagonist, ketamine. You know, I can tell you for most of our cases, our range, total dosage of ketamine in our practice is somewhere between 20, and I might hit 50 milligrams, but that would be for like a 16-hour uh, case, uh, and I might be witnessing some breakthrough on the hemodynamic monitors and stuff. Um, GABA type A, so our propofol, that's one of the things that we also run as an infusion, so it's lidocaine, dexmedetomidine, ketamine, uh, as well as propofol, and then our paralytic um, <clears throat> agent. Propofol is the one that we bounce up and down on to make sure that we have this sedative hypnosis, um, but also has a number of other beneficial properties, like we heard about lidocaine. You know, uh, the increased or the reduction in paralytic ileus postoperatively, so you get return uh, bowel function a little bit quicker with uh, infusion of lidocaine. Uh, steroids, uh, we heard that this morning too, Dexme um, decadron um, or dexamethasone, thank you, um, is probably going to see a little bit more incorporation into the perioperative space as far as dosing um, because of the reduction in postoperative nausea and vomiting as well as the reduction in inflammation. And then beta blockers like uh, esmolol um, for pain management. <clears throat> Let's see. And so just before we kind of transition over into some of the economics and, and the outcomes, you know, enhanced recovery is not a surgeon. It's not one person that's going to start and revolutionize, you know, the approach um, throughout the perioperative space. It's teams, and it's a team of teams. Everything from whoever sees the patient before they get access to the facility to not only discharge but follow up when the patient has gone through the entire continuum of care. Um, I can tell you that our enhanced recovery teams are typically somewhere between 30 and 50 people that are sitting around that table. Is it huge? Absolutely. And sometimes it's a struggle. You know, the goal, you know, if you haven't started an enhanced recovery program in your facility and you want to get one started, you do have to pick the champions, but they have to be throughout the entire continuum of care. First case, so Dr. Vijay Gautamakala and myself did the first enhanced recovery case at MD Anderson, um, and it was on an informed consumer. It was a head and neck surgeon. We were taking out 70% uh, of his liver, and so we do the whole multimodal approach. Resection takes about you know, two and a half, three hours. We get out of the recovery room. I go back, got a second case where we got to do a little liver wedge resection, takes about two hours. I come out and ask the PACU nurses, I say, where's Dr. X? And they're like, he's in his room. I said, no, there's no patient in that room where we drop them off. She, they're like, no, he's, he's in the room. So I go over to the room, and, and at the side of the bed, legs up on a chair, reading the, the, the New York Times with his glasses. And I said, Dr. X? And he says, um, he pulls his paper down, and he's like, what did you guys give me? I said, well, we talked about the multimodal. And, and he, says, he says, I want to have a drink right now, and the nurses won't let me because it's not long enough out of surgery. Uh, he had only been at that time, you know, they weren't giving him anything. and It was like 45 minutes after surgery. He says, I want to get up and walk around the recovery room. Nurses won't let me because they're worried I'm going to fall. He says, I couldn't be more clear-headed right now. And so 
highlights the importance of working and educating the entire team so that if the recovery room nurses, we didn't teach them about it, we were just trying this, and um, it was pretty successful. And um, we didn't educate the recovery room nurses about what to expect. Yes, you can go ahead and start feeding him clear liquids you know, within two hours after surgery. You can ambulate anywhere from 60 minutes to 120 minutes after surgery. These are cases that used to sit in the bed for periods of at least one to two days before getting out and sitting in the chair four times a day. And now, within two to four hours after surgery, we actually have markers around the unit where they actually walk laps around. And so, you know, I think one of the things that we always look for the magic bullet, the holy grail, which sometimes it's just nutrition and exercise, and the quicker we can get that individual up out of bed walking around, the quicker they heal, they recover, because they've got circulation, they've got nutrition, and then we augment with the agents that we give. So with that being said, extremely important that everybody across, and then you also want to monitor all of your outcomes. Um, you know, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the outcomes that, that probably would be good to focus on, at least as a start, give you some benchmark data that's out there. A lot of the benchmark data that, I, that I'll put up here, um, <clears throat> well, there it is, uh, is typically from study, so first of all, let's just go through each one. Respiratory depression. Um, certainly in the surgical population, the perioperative space is all over the place. Uh, I've seen numbers as low as 1%, and I've seen them as high as 30% but large volume studies that actually meet statistical significance um, is about 3.3% incident. To manage every incident or episode of respiratory depression on average costs about $568. That does not include pulling the shrink wrap off of the ventilator and then bringing in your RT to help manage a vent. You know, usually ventilators pull that shrink wrap off is about $750, and then you hook them up, and then you got personnel costs. So 568. So you can figure, you start doing the math, every 100 cases, this starts to add up really fast uh, over the course of, uh, of a week. Post-operative nausea and vomiting. Those numbers, depending on the studies that you look at, uh, low-powered studies uh, can be as high as, I've seen numbers as high as 60%. Um, Certainly, I would, you know, we're going to start to see ASA is going to come out with a consensus document here um, in hopefully within the next couple of months because um, I have a couple of peers that I've uh, put on that committee. Um, but it's about 15%. And to manage every episode of post-operative nausea and vomiting is about $87.12 on average when you start factoring all the, the personnel time and the agents, et cetera, to try to manage that. Here's a big one, post-operative ileus. And that study, there's two big studies that are about... Uh, 427 patients in the study, 15.6% incidence of postoperative ileus for lower abdominal, and these, again, are all based on lower abdominal surgeries, $10,247. Some of the lower-powered studies are somewhere around eight dollars to $9,000. Every 100 cases that you do, 15.6 of those patients are going to develop some form of postoperative ileus Without, that's traditional strategies. That's using your, like we used to do, bathe them with sufentanil. Well, if that didn't work and they got breakthrough, then we'll hammer them with some hydromorphone and, you know, <clears throat> oh, why not? We'll throw in some benzodiazepines, etc. cetera. Um, urinary retention. Um, so whether we're 
you know, doing the epidurals, uh, et cetera, or spinals. 2% incidence, and when you go back to the CAUTI literature, 19 per, 12 to 19% will develop some form of a UTI, and that management is about $1,357 uh, to manage. <clears throat> Postoperative cognitive disorder, another rationale why we should be moving away from opioids and, and really trying to tailor our anesthetics as well as the agents that we prescribe specifically when patients have additional comorbidities and their risk goes up. Um, Postoperative cognitive disorder, which we still don't have a good handle on. There's a lot of, lot of work going around it right now uh, with studies. But on average, to manage mental status change in the perioperative space is about $2,500 per incidence. <clears throat> and certainly, you know, parsing out what is postoperative cognitive disorder versus dementia, etc. Um, certainly trying to tease that stuff out. So the cleaner we can do an anesthetic, the more we can mitigate some of that stuff. In addition to that, you got mental status change, and then we're we're you know pouring in the opiates to patients historically with our traditional mechanisms. Then they become incapacitated, and then you've got. Um, additional prophylaxis that you need to add because of concerns with DVT because they're bedridden. 2.2% incidence of that. Uh, again, those studies uh, are range anywhere from as I've seen as low as 2 and I've seen as high as 12 to 14% um, in the orthopedic population. $4,100 roughly to manage every incident or episode of that. So 2.2 patients with traditional strategies um, is going to start to cost some money by the end of the month. 5.4% uh, incidence of 30-day readmission rates. Um, the cost, these are CMS numbers, $11,200 per incident. So $11,200 is like when you look at salaries through the Department of Labor, there's a lag of about what seems to be about a decade. So that's probably off about 15 to 30%. So you're probably looking closer to, to 15 to $20,000. For every, and that's something that the system, the hospital system, will eat that cost entirely. There is no reimbursement for a 30-day readmission rate. <clears throat> Length of stay, and this is the big one that enhanced recovery programs, when they're well executed, can make major impacts and certainly make the patients really happy because the last place they want to be sitting is in the hospital. 10% incident, or 10%, uh, it's 10 days, is the average length of stay of a lower abdominal um, procedure should be 10% should be 10 days and every day is about on average uh, the hotel charge is about $2,064 and that's 2017 numbers for CMS as I said earlier we we're able to get 10 to 14 days down to 2.7 to 3 to 4 days length of stay the average reduction with enhanced recovery programs is anywhere from two and a half days to about four days, depending on the studies that you're looking at. <clears throat> um, so significant reductions. When you factor that into enhanced recovery, I'm not going to get into the, to the itchiness that's related to whether that be intrathecal versus epidural uh, injections of opioids. Um, we don't... We don't just don't see that with enhanced recovery. Respiratory depression, so a combination of um, minimizing, if not eliminating, the goal being to eliminate opioids if we can. And again, tongue in cheek, because chronic pain or, 
or multiple comorbidities add to the complexity of that. But certainly when we're eliminating opiates, um, in addition to that, there's another agent that's part of our armamentarian. It's an agent called um, Sugamidex, which is a reversal agent that we've incorporated into our enhanced. While it's not opioid, doesn't have anything to do with pain, but we're able to cleanly mitigate the causes from us of respiratory depression and be able to get to a differential diagnosis. Is it sleep apnea? Is it something else that's going on with the patient? <clears throat> Postoperative ileus. Um, a lot of the studies will tell you that you can at least cut postoperative ileus in half with using agents like alvimapan and, and the newer mu, um, uh, selective mu uh, antagonists. But certainly um, postoperative ileus is mitigated because of things like lidocaine, getting up after surgery a lot earlier, bringing in, you know, there was a gentleman here earlier this morning that had asked about preoperative nutrition, and certainly you're seeing a lot of manufacturers circle around, can I create a clear liquid carbohydrate drink? And certainly the easiest things that we do is just give them two little packets of cranberry juice or, uh, or apple juice two hours before going back. We like to have that uh, four hours before that also. Um, certainly doing a lot of those. And now there's, there's literature around um, for bowel cases, whether they should actually be doing a colon prep because of the agents that are in the colon prep are denuding the, um, the integumentary of the uh, alimentary canal. And so there's thoughts that they may actually contribute to increased surgical site infection. They actually might enhance inflammatory processes. And so you're starting to see some bowel surgeons uh, move away from um, preps. Uh, certainly, again, that's literature that's all over the place. <clears throat> Urinary retention, uh, one of the goals with enhanced recovery is get all the tubes out of the patients as quick as you can so that you can get them ambulating, hopefully, uh, in two hours or less after surgery. <clears throat> mental status changes. Now that we've cleaned up our anesthetics, we do still see mental status changes, but they are not related to the postoperative cognitive disorder. Because not only have we removed the majority of opiates from our practice, but we've also removed a lot of the inhalation anesthetic gases in our practice too. <clears throat> DVTs, um, hypercoagulable states, you'll see patients. We've had some service lines that have run 18 to 26 months in those service lines with 0% 30-day readmission rate. Those are staggering numbers. And that, when you have an incredible team that comes together in your hospital system that is constantly communicating and tweaking the regimen centered around each patient as a unique individual, you will be able to achieve the majority of those numbers. Now, those are tapered off. I mean, you're going to get one-offs, but you are drastically able to address 30-day readmission rates. I've said enough, I think, about length of stay. We've been able to, to knock off almost a full seven days uh, of hospitalization. <clears throat> so when you start looking at what are the costs, when probabilities, you know the overall is about $1,300 um, in managing if there was just one episode each day of each one of these, uh, of which depending on the volume you're doing in your center, we do on average 200 cases a day. So you can add those numbers up and that's going to um, 
substantially increase the cost of hospitalization that now under MACRA, if you're under an alternative payment model, the system's going to eat the cost. If you're going to continue to incur these types of incomes, there's hospital compare and then there's physician compare. So anybody that's in the room that's either a physician or an advanced practice provider like nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, PAs, anybody that gets reimbursement, your outcome numbers that are going to be reportable to CMS are going to potentially incur not only risk but penalty on reimbursement at the end of the year. This year it's 4%. <clears throat> um, if you're not meeting the thresholds under uh, merit incentive payment systems, and then that goes up until 2022 to where it's 9%. For the facility, so for the facility, there's a 3x multiplier. So 9% in 2022, but the facility gets hit 27% on the reimbursement. Now, third-party payers, I'm sure, are watching this and seeing how this is going to play. 2019 is the first, is the first year that it's been incepted, so we're going to start to see a lot of this macro stuff start to come to light here, I suspect, in the next 6 to 12 months um, because people are going to be wondering where was our reimbursement why do we get penalized for certain things. <clears throat> so the question, <clears throat> you know, when we look at direct cost, um, so we went through a whole lot of variable costs that, that if you look at those percentages, those are benchmarks from large-scale studies. So you can go back to your facility and say, what does our numbers look like? And then if we change our practices, can we get it lower? Because at the end of the day, you want a happier patient, but you also want to make it economically sustainable. Does it cost more directly for the agents that we use to do opioid-sparing techniques? Absolutely. $1,400. On average, fourteen to fifteen hundred dollars. Well, that's in in our practice for what we spend uh, on the average eight to twelve hour case. <clears throat> when you look at the cost for traditional strategies, about two hundred forty seven dollars with the incorporation of of opiates. But when you look at the outcomes, it's anywhere from five to six fold benefit in outcomes, not only from an economic standpoint but also from a patient uh, outcome standpoint. So. When you look at the studies with enhanced recovery, again, these studies are all over the place. It depends on where the study was done, what kind of facility it was at, and what country it was done in. But per patient savings, when you do opioid-sparing multimodal strategies as one of the main elements of enhanced recovery, ranges between $800 and $5,500 per patient. So... You can see that will add up very quick. You reduce length of stay on average, as I said earlier, three to four days, reduce 30-day um, readmission rate on patients. And again, that literature is quite debatable, but I can tell you anecdotally through some of our service lines, we've been able to knock that out of the park. <clears throat> and then, you know, the most important thing is, is the patient actually, patient and family members, if they're traveling into a facility, um, don't have to spend their time away from home. They get to become productive members of society again in a, in a, in a I, I wish I had the, the video of the individual that's sitting there day 2.7 is sitting there as, a, you know, he went through a 14 to 16 hour procedure and he's sitting in a chair, did not need to supplement, you know, there's discomfort, but he's, he's not pain free, but there was no need to have any type of 
opiate to manage any breakthrough pain. Um, he gets up and walks out with his wife. Uh, you know, we videotape him. Um, taking in full diet has, you know, you know, when we matured colostomies, we wouldn't have patients take anything for a few days. We're already giving them clear liquids uh, day of once we get bowel function uh, at least remotely back uh, and then get them up walking around. So um, pretty incredible stuff if you haven't got enhanced recovery programs in your facility. Um, and every single person in this room has something to add to enhanced recovery uh, strategies in any type of healthcare setting. And so, sir, I encourage every single one of you, again, I hate to see spaces between everybody. Everybody should be clumped together and be networking um, because it's only successful when we all come together and share all of our expertise to build um, very strong plans like this around patients. So with that, uh, you know, I think we went through some of the crisis. We kind of reviewed a lot of the stuff that uh, has been said numerous times today. And then we looked at some of the economic impacts where this is only going to get more and more important as we start to move from current year 2019 out to 2022. And so with that, I want to thank you. And I'll open it up for questions because I think we're almost at the end. Yes, sir. Yes. From Europe. And the commentary really wasn't related to this one paragraph that I'm kind of paraphrasing is that sure. when he was talking about, um, you know, non-opioid, you know, intra-op and, and really low post-op, that we may have reached the point where we may not need interreg or alvimapan. And, and that, you know, as you say, you redesign, yep. you reevaluate, because yep. we had two physicians, two surgeons, that when I, you know, when it first came out, it was $50. And yep. I know the cost in the cost comparison. But, you know, when you're going to be looking at all the things it's, that we're going to be crunched down for payment and yep. the hospitals are going to be getting tight, administrators don't understand. Um, but whenever I, I had two physicians that completely stopped using it, and they really didn't even look back. They didn't see a difference. And one wow. of them does Whipples. He does very <clears throat> complicated yep. cases. Yep. Yep. So, so, you know, I, I – I think that, you know, like you say, you've got to keep reevaluating yep. what's working, what's not working. The problem is, is that some of the literature, when you're adding 12 things yeah. to the, it's hard to parse out what's really yep. helping. Yeah. Yep. And, and so what I will say to that is, is we do that too. And um, I, I think when you implement a program, you don't just set it on cruise control. It is constant evaluation. And yes, it's a lot of work. Um, and we have, same thing as alvimapan. We are now only, you know, our surgeons dictate whether, um, who they're going to give it to. And it, we were running in a run for a while where we would give it to everybody. Um, and now they've been able to parse out and say, you know, this is the higher risk for whatever his, his differential is or hers. Um, and they determine whether the patient will receive that. And you're right. I mean, you know, we may see a day with, you know, as these innovations start to transform um, and as more tools like, you know, I just, I can't wait till like pharmacogenomics reporting becomes 
part of the dashboard on the electronic health record so that I can say, all right, I need to give somebody on Danzatron because granisetron won't work and, you know, et cetera. Um, but we're not there yet. Um, and, and certainly I think the reevaluation and, and yes, when we make changes and we may have a battery of 20 agents, but we only change one agent when it makes sense and then we'll evaluate, evaluate. And we'll, tramadol, we used to give everybody. Now we don't. <clears throat> we only use chronic pain and then selective cases uh, depending on, you know, what the procedure is, what the surgeon is doing, um, and what technique he's using on, or she is using on the field. Um, versus maybe a robotic surgery. So yes, absolutely. Reevaluation is a critical component. You know, I mean, it's like updating your hospital policies or your facility. How many times, you know, do people really do it every two years, right? It's work. <laughs> so, but you got, you, yeah, it's joint, yeah, they'll make sure it happens every three. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it speaks to the, you've got to build time all of us are sitting here with production pressure every day in, in whether it be clinic or in the hospital or whether it be in the perioperative space. And we always have to build in time to where you do maintenance. Um, because if you don't, that is going to dis destroy you in the long run. Because how do you make any innovations other than piecemealing? And, and I get this all the time when people say, well, how did you get started? Can you share, you know, the recipe with me? It's like, well, I can share a framework, there's lots out there, um, but what works in our practice may not work in your practice. And so evaluating that and being able to use what we were educated with is the skill sets to be able to evaluate what's prudent in our patient population. Um, so yeah, other questions? No? All right, yeah. Uh, so. And, and you really just barely touched on it because they, they've talked about it in other programs. But gabapentinoids. Say uh, Gabapentinoids. Yep. So gabapentin. Um, and I've read a lot of the literature because I, I went to our surgical, I mean, our anesthesia um, meeting system-wide and mm -hmm. did the presentation for um, a lot of what you've said in terms of some of the meds. Uh, the dose that's in the literature is six, nine, and even twelve hundred yeah. twelve hundred yeah. milligrams. And are you using three hundred? Like probably <laughs> yeah. everybody it's else. It's interesting because the lady that spoke just before me two hours ago yeah. um, was saying that you need to have twelve hundred milligrams at least. I think I know who that is. Yeah. And 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 which that might be the case in that patient population. That's fine. We use. Get ready between 75 and 300. Yeah. And, and I think this speaks to the first speakers this morning at 1030 is, is it additive? Is it synergy? We don't know. Yeah. But it's, it, you know, that's the art of the science is you're constantly tweaking and evaluating to that patient. Yeah, I asked that speaker last year about the 1200 milligram yeah. patient that uh, would they be perceived as maybe narcotized because the way they're you know, reacting to, you know, the physician's quick visit, the surgeon's quick visit, and because and, I've seen it a couple of times. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's impossible. The only way you could ever do it is to predispose them like two weeks before when you're doing the pre-anesthesia testing and start them on gabapentinoids right. and then get them up to yeah. the dose. That's the only way you're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we do leverage, we know you're going to get drowsy from it, yeah. uh, especially if you've never used it before. 
Um, and patients will tell us, oh, I'm getting kind of sleepy. But that's they don't they don't stop breathing but or anything. What's, what's changed recently is that pregabalin is now generic, and right. you may find that that may be a better product. Right for that. We, we so yeah, this gets into the the variability among providers because we have some our thoracic service line they use pregabalin, and then we use gabapentin for all of our surgical oncology uh, patients, and so. You know, we get into those debates, but I, I think to your point is is the efficacy um, needs to be evaluated. So I did two patients with the surgeon in anesthesiology later, and we ramped up a patient on gabapentin, two patients before uh-huh. surgery, and we had a comparison. Uh, they did a 360 spinal, and anterior was, was the ramp up, uh-huh. while the posterior was the other, and was, the length of say was a third. Wow, wow. Yeah. So the ramp up, we were able to give a bigger dose. Yeah. Wow. Good deal. All right. Well, I'll hang a little bit if, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions or chat or thank you.